When you're looking at buying a new product, let's say a car, as if you could right now, or a computer or a phone, and you're looking through its promotional material, typically you're gonna see or hear about the features of that to compel you to make it yours. You want to make a right decision, and the manufacturer knows that, and so they will use words like better or superior to define its features and assure you. In Hebrews, the writer is not trying to sell a product but he is trying to convince his hearers of a better perspective concerning a way of life that he believes has eternal consequences. It's all about Jesus. And as we read between the lines, those receiving his communication had put their trust in Jesus and despite experiencing persecution, loss of property, the experience of shame because of their beliefs, they had stayed true to their decision the first time, the first wave. But now, at the time of this writing, another wave of difficulty is looming large again, creating a, a struggle of faith, questioning their decision to, to follow Christ. If we have understood the context right, persecution could be avoided. These primarily Jewish Christians could go back to their old beliefs of Judaism, which received protection from Rome, and be safe. But it would mean walking away from Christ. And this is the tragedy the writer wants his listeners to avoid at all costs. And this is what has made Hebrews a timeless word to us today. There are always reasons to abandon faith. It may be persecution, it may be prosperity. All of us regularly encounter perspectives and proposals for what makes for the best life that aren't centered in Christ. But, says the writer, Jesus is the better way. Look to the Supreme Son. In chapter 1, he overwhelms us with an onslaught of Old Testament scriptures to show the Jewish Christians from their own Bible that Jesus is superior. Jesus is the divine Son of God. How could you want or hope for anything else? The, one who, the, the Christian who confessed, Jesus shares in the honor of God. He shares in the attributes of God, the names of God, the deeds of God. He shares in the seat of the eternal throne of God. And as his Father is... Jesus is God. When you get Hebrews chapter 1, it, it makes you want to bend your knees and bow your head in worship. But the author is saying, that's not all. I'm not done. There's more. While chapter 1 focuses on the divinity of Jesus, chapter 2 focuses on what he did as the divine Son of God. He became human. It's remarkable. And we're going to look at that from four themes that come out of the verses in chapter 2 and then look at the response the writer is urging us towards. In Jesus' humanity, we have a, a divine humility, a divine identification, a divine deliverance. We have a divine help. So let's dive in at verse 5. Divine humility. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, as the author used angels as a comparison to illustrate the magnitude of his point in chapter 1, he does the same in chapter 2. You might recall in Hebrews, angels are presented as good. They were instrumental in bringing God's precious law to the nation of Israel. They were ministering spirits set, spirits sent by God. The biblical record shows how, pe how people are often overwhelmed when they come into the presence of an angel. They have a superior presence than a human being. But we are told, it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come. 
what does he mean by that? Where is he going with this? Well, the writer is speaking of our future world and how it will be governed. So by whom is the world to come going to be ruled? It's not angels. Do you know? He answers. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. As Hebrews will do consistently, the writer quotes the Old Testament to prove his point. This is from Psalm 8. Did you catch who is going to rule? Under whom everything is going to be put under his feet? It sounds like a Jeopardy question. And the answer is, what is man? God puts everything under the subjection of man, not angels, man. That can't be right. I mean, even the psalmist finds this a little crazy. He's speaking to God and he says, what is man that you even give him a thought, that you're mindful of him, that, that you care for him? I mean, no offense, but you and I don't deserve God's attention and care. God being God needs nothing from us. What could God gain from this? Most readers of Psalm 8 hear the echoes of the creation story in Genesis 1 and the privileged responsibility spoken to Adam, the first man. Then God said, let us make man in our, in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Under God's authority, Adam was to be the co-ruler of his world. But Adam messed up, and we continue to do so. So we certainly don't see things in orderly subjection to mankind, do we? I mean, look at our world. Do you ever think, wow, it's such a mess, and we're the biggest contributor? Ah, the writer to the Hebrews says, you're right. And though he has spoken about everything being put under man's feet, subjected to him, look at the last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But here's what we do see, and it has everything to do with what Jesus has done as the divine son. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Chapter 1 gives us the truth that Jesus is God. Chapter 2 gives us the truth that Jesus becomes human. In Psalm 8, Jesus, like he does in so many other Old Testament scriptures, fulfills the scripture's intent. He is the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus was and always will be God. But as we'll see, he became human for our sakes. This is the ultimate in downward mobility I've been on more than one excursion to a country where conditions were, let's just say, less than stellar. Sleeping in a filthy, uncomfortable bed, eating food I was not accustomed to, sometimes making me sick, no transportation of my own, subject to the plans of those that I was there to help. I knew it was just for a little while. I would be returning home in a week or two and reacquaint myself to the comforts and freedoms of my cushy North American lifestyle. Yet even so, that purposeful downward mobility, that was hard. It's hard for us to mentally grasp what it was like for the divine Son of God, 
creator and sustainer of the universe to be made lower than the angels. The difference between his freedoms entitled to him as God and the restrictions he took on as man. His humanity is now forever, his humility as a man, for a little while. In his book, The Jesus Who Never Lived, Exposing False Christs and Finding the Real Jesus, Wayne House says, in some way, the transcendent, infinite deity joined himself permanently to humanity. The creator took upon himself creatureliness without ceasing to be God. In theological terms, we call this the incarnation. In Jesus, God becoming fully man while remaining fully God. One person with two natures. House goes on, the unfathomable nature of the incarnation causes all the miracles of the Bible to pale in comparison. It is not unthinkable that as believers under pressure, the people Hebrews is written to would struggle with the humanity of Jesus. I mean, if he is so much superior to angels, he certainly didn't look like it, and especially as one who hung on the cross. The Apostle Paul wrote, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. Son of God on a cross? I mean, this is a non-starter for Muslims. God would never allow his son to suffer, right? But the writer to the Hebrews tells us this downward mobility was in fact the pathway to the throne of God that Jesus now sits upon. In humbling himself for a season, for a little while, he opened the door for God to exalt him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus becoming human was necessary to God's plan. Verse 10, divine identification. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. From now to the end of the chapter, we are given further insight into the why of Jesus' humanity and his suffering. We are told it was fitting meaning it was only right for this to happen. God's intent was to make the founder of our faith perfect through suffering. The word founder is the idea of pioneer, trailblazer, even hero. The one who goes ahead and then others are to follow. As the pioneer, it is only fitting that God has not asked something of us that he himself was not willing to do. You might have to pay a cost for your faith. You might have to suffer for your faith. Well, he did too to an infinitely, infinitely greater degree, and he did it for you. In doing so, Jesus was made perfect for his role. I mean, Jesus is already morally perfect, but his experience of our humanity, his experience of suffering and death, makes him perfectly qualified to be our help. Jesus was not bubble-wrapped. I mean, the believers in Hebrews had suffered because of their faith, and they might suffer again. But that is something Jesus has already gone ahead of them and in his humanity tasted difficulty and temptation and yet remained obedient. He overcame. And now being exalted to the right hand of God, the place of glory and honor, he was gone ahead as well able to get us to that place of glory and honor too. So that he refers to us as a sanctified family. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The idea of being sanctified is to be set apart, chosen, purified for a special purpose. Another term for this is to be made holy. Typically, the one who sanctifies refers to God. And here, that is applied to Jesus, reemphasizing that in his, in his humanity, Jesus did not cease to be God. The special place that believers have originates in God and his plan. He is the one source or origin. As people put their trust in Jesus, he now shares that relationship and participation of God's plan with believers so that he considers them. Not as people out there somewhere that he, the superior, has done great things for. No, he considers them as family, and he is not ashamed to do so. It is so easy to be shy about our allegiance to Christ in a world where Christianity is looked down upon. You can feel that today. We may even be ashamed to be known as Christian given how some in the name of Christ act so inappropriately. But despite our flaws, Jesus is not ashamed of his allegiance to us. In his book on Hebrews, David De Silva says that Jesus esteems that believers highly enough to associate them as sisters and brothers would restore the hearer's shaken sense of their own honor, assailed so thoroughly by their unbelieving neighbors, as well as deepen their sense of gratitude and obligation to the Son who has treated them with honor beyond their deserving. In Hebrews, the writer has again quoted the Old Testament. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is from Psalm 22. It starts as Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But turns to a singing community of family in the middle of the psalm because of God's faithfulness. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is from Isaiah 8, reminding us that there can be faithfulness even when most everyone around us are rejecting the word God has spoken. Both of these are passages of scripture that express trust and hope in the midst of difficult circumstances, in particular, suffering for their allegiance to God. How appropriate to the struggling community of faith. How appropriate to us. Now, it's one thing to be in a difficult situation, have people around you to console you. It's another when someone has the power to actually do something about your situation. Jesus does more than empathize. His identification with us, his taking on of our humanity is a game changer for our present and our future. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews presents a world that is far more than what you can see with your natural eyes. Heavenly creatures called angels, and here a spiritual being called Satan. The writer connects what we can see in this life and so often fear, death, with that evil one that we don't see, the devil. Both are enemies. And because the divine Son of God became flesh and blood like us, and out of obedience to God, the, his Father subjected himself to the full human experience in the worst way. 
His death on a cross became the deliverance and the gateway for us to know that we can really live. Most people in the first century had little hope for the future beyond death. And maybe you're listening today and you would only be guessing as to what happens beyond death's door. We say some pretty hopeful things, but do we really know? Hebrews proclaims that Jesus brought a sure hope right at the point of this hard experience. There's such a finality to death. There's always some sadness in the death of someone we love and cherish, knowing that we are never going to see them again here. Death has its sting. But Christians sorrow and process death in a different way because we know that Jesus, by dying, defeated death and the one who yielded its power. As Jesus approached the cross, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Hebrews expresses that victory with an emphasis on Jesus' ascension. But the ascension only happened as a direct result of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Then to be enthroned, crowned with glory and honor, he conquered sin and death, not so much because he was God, but because he was one of us. The disobedience of the man Adam brought death. The obedience of the man Jesus brought life. It was fitting, it was right. It was necessary for our sake that the Son of God would be like us, flesh and blood, and die. But death could not hold him. And so for those who trust in him, it cannot prevent the life beyond the grave that is there for us by faith too. Have you put your trust in him? This frees us up. I mean, when you believe in Jesus, there's no slavery to fear. You are free to do the right thing, even if it costs your life. Do your worst. I am not afraid. I know what lies beyond the grave. Our God and King, our Savior and our big brother, we can persevere. He is for us. Jesus is our help. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The writer had begun the conversation with a reference to angels and he closes this part of the conversation in the same way. All that the Son of God has done is not for the heavenly creatures, but for people who believe, who by their trust are made part of the family of faith characterized by Abraham. It is those human beings that Jesus helps. Now, how in particular does he do this? By becoming one of us, so that he could be a merciful and high priest. In particular, it says to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In chapter 1, the writer had mentioned Jesus dealing with our sin. Once again, we are presented with the subject of sin here. And this subject will surface repeatedly in Hebrews. When we think of needing God's help, we probably think of what seems most practical to us. I need wisdom or, or financial help or rat, relational help or maybe help with stress. God can help us in all those things. He loves us when we look to him for our everything. But our greatest need has to do with sin. Sin is that which brought death. Sin separates us from God. Sin poisons our relationship with each other. 
And because he was made like us in every respect, Jesus is perfectly qualified to help us here. And we now see the fuller explanation of why it was fitting for Jesus to become one of us. In Old Testament times, the people could not approach God directly. God is too holy. His presence would be the death of them. So relationship with God was mediated through the high priest. He was the go-between God and the people. So let me ask you, who could better serve the relationship between God and man than the one who in his person is both fully God, fully man, fully qualified, the person of Jesus Christ? In the Old Testament, as prescribed by God, once a year and only once a year, the high priest would make a special sacrifice for the sins of the people by entering to the most holy place in the tabernacle. It was called the Day of Atonement. As a result, God himself said, you shall be clean from the Lord for all your sins. Jesus was perfectly qualified to offer up himself as that perfect sacrifice, once and for all, for the sins of the world, because he was sinless. And this would accomplish a propitiation, as some versions render it, which has to do with the removal of God's wrath, or atonement or expiation, as other versions render it, which has to do with the removal or cancellation of sin. Both are truths, and Hebrews does not necessarily direct us to which is more preferred in this verse. We should not lose the point that our sin is dealt with by Jesus, who in his humanity has become our merciful and faithful high priest, who having been tempted to, to greater degree of temptation than you and I will ever be tempted because he never gave in. He resisted temptation to its fullest and he is able to help you in yours. Whatever you're going through, how difficult times may feel, the temptation you may feel the pull of, he knows he's been there and he is there for you. Recently, I had a conversation with an extended family member who is struggling with cancer, and she has lost like a, a lot of weight. She's enduring pain. She's struggling with mobility. She was always so supportive of my wife and her journey with cancer. But now experiencing it herself, she said to me, Tim, I had no idea. Now that I know what I know, I am so sorry. I just didn't know. The story of scripture and the person of Jesus is that we have a great and all-powerful God, but one who humbled himself to become one of us. He gets us because he completely identified with us to experience what we do, yet without sin. And he is able to help us in our temptation to persevere, to stay true, to walk sanctified and holy as a brother or sister with Christ, part of his sanctified family destined for glory and honor with the one who became like us, lowered himself but is crowned with glory and honor and will surely take you there too. How can you, how can we not worship, love, and trust a God like this? One more thing. We now go back to the beginning of this chapter. Sandwiched between these incredible truths, the divinity of Jesus in chapter 1 and the humanity of Jesus in chapter 2 is a solemn call to respond regarding to what we have heard. There are five warnings in, in the message to the Hebrews. Here's the first. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. If you are a believer, what we have talked about so far in the last week's message and what we are talking about today, it should foster a great confidence in your faith. The writer wants us to hold that with a great carefulness. Jesus is God. Jesus became man for our sakes. With all that he is and all that he has done, how great is our salvation, declared at first by Jesus, then by followers, approved by God, bearing witness with out of the ordinary things to show that this is true confidence. And how shall we escape if we neglect it? Carefulness. You got to know that you are in a world where you are bombarded with messages and temptations to pull you away from the centrality that is Jesus. And the antidote to that is to be careful, to be attentive, to be purposeful. Neglect is simply the absence of intention. If we do not make Jesus and his word to us our priority, to hear it and do what it says, we will most certainly drift. And the consequences of that are grave. But if we turn towards him and make him our goal, he will certainly help. In your carefulness, you can be confident of this.